I had got into a rut with an image of myself as like a, a kind of a shambles of a person, which I wasn't fully committed to sorting out. And although it's ridiculous to think, um, well, a TV show is the way to deal with that. I, it's a big and it's a big and weird enough thing to be offered that it struck me as like a kind of. I knew I would definitely change by doing it, and the gamble that it might be a worse change seemed worth taking. It gets better cause it has to get better We're all made of human Hello and welcome to the Made of Human podcast. My name is Sophie Hagen and um, I sound tired. <laughs> it's because I am. It's been uh, quite a day. You know what? It's been quite a week. And before we go into the episode, which is a, it's a two-parter this time, um... Because it's with Mark Watson, and he is a really good friend of mine. And everything he says just makes me want to ask him more questions. So uh, it ends up being a two-parter. We get into some kind of deep stuff. I remember always to read the uh, the trigger warnings and stuff, which I, I put in the episode descriptions. But um, before I want to say that, I just want to say uh, I... I don't know if you've noticed, uh, you may not have, in which case just ignore what I'm saying, but um, I've been under <laughs> some, uh, been quite, um, I've been under attack recently because of some tweets I did. Like, none of that's new. You, if you know me just a little bit, you know that that happens fucking all the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I've been under attack. It's been quite, it's probably the biggest attack that I've um, suffered through yet. Now, I don't really give a shit. In the, like, I don't give a shit about what they say, but it does tire you out, you know, just getting a lot of abuse all the time, you know. You, the, you reach a, not a breaking point, but you reach a point when, you know, people saying, uh, go kill yourself, you fat cunt, or uh, I wouldn't assault you if because you're a fat whale, or whatever. It comes a point when you get, <laughs> I mean, emotionally tired, <laughs> Of hearing all those things. So I've just kind of, like, I don't want to give them the satisfaction of me reading what they're writing. So basically what I'm saying is, I know that a lot of you have been incredibly supportive and lovely and, uh, like, you've been arguing with them and you've been, uh, you know, trying to support me in all sorts of ways. But I'm not reading tweets and I'm not reading messages or emails and stuff at the moment. So... Uh, but I, I want you to know that I'm aware that you support me, <laughs> if that sounds right. Um, and I'm so, so happy. For, like, it really, like, I don't worry about me. I'm absolutely fine. I feel supported. I feel quite supported. Like, you you know, I can see just, you know, you've, you, my tour is over now and you, you went to see my tour. I can see that you support me on the, the ticket sales. I can see you support me on how many times I sell my show over the internet. I can see how much you support me from um, how many times you download the podcast or uh, buy tickets for the live shows of the podcast or like I can, I know you're there and I know you're, you're, that you're behind me. So uh, I might not be reading your emails or your messages, but like, thank you. Thank you for, for supporting me. Um, I, I see you doing that, and I am very, very grateful. Uh, and don't, if you can help it, like, don't read the tweets, don't read the comments, just don't give them the satisfaction of letting this get you down. These are 
incredibly sad people. Incredibly. Imagine, and I said this before, imagine hating yourself so much that you need to try and make other people sad. Like imagine hating yourself so much that even possible negative attention is good attention because at least you'll be seen. That's what I always imagine, that these people are gaping holes that just want someone to see them, even if it's someone calling them a dickhead. And that is so sad. Imagine that. So don't read their comments. Don't, you know, don't let them rile you up. When you see someone being attacked online like that, uh, report the tweets. That always, that's always, I know that social media, they do nothing to help you. And they do nothing to support women. So it can be frustrating to report the tweets. But if you can, that's always fun. Uh, it is nice to get an email where they say, um, oh yeah, we've blocked their account. You're like, yes. <laughs> um, but if you can't do that, don't focus on them. Instead, go to uh, women's profiles and retweet the stuff that gets the abuse and you know help them, support them, You know, buy someone's album, um, go see a live show, uh, spread positivity, go to your favorite profile on Instagram and tell the person that you think they're fucking amazing and beautiful. Like, spread the positivity. That's all you can do. Because um, I receive, at the moment, I receive like hundreds of these a minute. And that's all, whatever that is. Um, I will get messages from, not messages, but I can see that my colleagues have tweeted about me, but not to me, but like, horrible things about me which is that's a whole other that's a whole other issue that hurts but that's for another reason these are people I've seen and hugged and given advice to or been given advice by or you know laughed with and where I'm like really that matters to you so much to get that retweet or that like from someone that you're willing to not be cool to a colleague like fuck off and um anyways what I wanted to say is I get so much of this these days so so much and then I got an email from two 12-year-old girls who were doing a school assignment about body issues. And um, in the email, they were asking if I wanted to do like this tiny interview for the... It's like a... Uh, I think it was like a school newspaper or something they were doing for a project. And so they said if I wanted to answer these questions. And I said, yeah, I do. And then one of the questions was, um, hi, we're two 12-year-old girls, and in our age... Uh, everyone hates their bodies, so how do you feel about yours? Fuck that. Fucking hell. I'm at 12 years old. And that's a blanket statement. Oh yeah, we just feel like this. 12 years old. Out of the thousands and thousands of like death threats and hatred and people telling me the worst things about what they want to do to me and not to do to me or whatever, that was the only thing that hurt. And that's, that's my point. That's, that's the whole reason for doing this. Like, don't, don't fucking notice the people who are spreading hatred and negativity. Just do something to make the world better for those girls. Like, cause that's, and I know, I'm not going to say that that's what I'm doing or that I'm Jesus or whatever. I'm just saying that you can disagree with me. You can try and pretend that you just want to be neutral or you can maybe think that my way of doing activism is, um, is wrong because I'm too aggressive or too loud or whatever. Fine, but fuck that. Like, fuck what I'm doing. 
fuck what they're saying about what I'm doing. Just do something. Don't be like, oh, I'll just stay out of it. I'll just stay neutral. Fuck that. Like that's that's no neutral. You're either supporting the people who are making these girls feel that way, or you're doing something. Like you cannot be neutral. There's there's no such thing. Um. So yeah, that's what I want to say. Like, fuck them. Like don't listen to them. That doesn't matter. It's the girls. Like that's the. 12-year-old girls for whom it's normal to hate themselves. What the fuck kind of world are we making where that's okay? So that's what I want to say. I'm not going to talk too much more. We'll do a... um, Yeah, let that be this week's act of disobedience, is me saying that. Uh, Yeah, so what I want to say is thank you for for supporting supporting me and all of that. Uh, Before I let you listen to the first uh, Mark Watson... uh, Well, it's the second... Time Mike Watson's done the podcast, but it's the first bit of a two-parter. It's very confusing. <laughs> um, remember, that Mark's about to go on tour at some point soon, or the tickets are going to come out soon. Uh, we don't, don't think we really had the dates when... Oh, well, Mark was too <laughs> uh, um, busy talking about uh, following him. I said we should follow him on Instagram. That's his thing. Um, but just so you know, go to his website and sign up for his newsletter. And go to my website and sign up for my my newsletter. Knowing me and Mark, eventually we'll have a newsletter together, probably. Um, so yeah, I was going to support him there. I am really, really tired. I have to travel very early in the morning, and I've been up since... I mean, fuck me. So uh, yeah, I, this is a, a, kind of a special... If this is the first time you're listening, this isn't how my intros usually go. I just really needed to say that, because um, my life's been quite... Uh, extreme this past week so i needed to say this to you people listening um yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah thank you i'm gonna let you listen to this episode of um the made of human podcast with mac watson first second mac watson episode first parter of the two parter i mean yeah so uh please uh do oh no no no, no. so i forgot to say this um, fuck that, don't edit this out. This this is gonna be like a ranty thing. It's fine. We're all good. You know I'm you know I'm recording this under my duvet at home. You know this isn't like a professional thing. So, uh the Mopad, this this podcast you listen to right now, will be doing live episodes and there's a lot. Okay, so uh I'm doing a week at the Soho Theatre in London in July. Go to SohoTheatre.com for the tickets for that. I'm gonna be at the McCundleth Comedy Festival. I'm gonna do two work in progress shows and one live Made of Human podcast. Um, the It's like in a tiny, tiny room, so get your tickets fast if you like that. I'll be at the Brighton Fringe, so go add um, to Brighton Fringe website and find that. Sign up for the Made of Human podcast newsletter to get all the links for this. Um, I will eventually put it on the website as well, just at some point. But Soho Theatre, McCunleth and Brighton Fringe. Uh, I will also be at the Edinburgh Fringe, but that's, that's ages away. We'll talk about that later. Now I just want you to enjoy one of the best people I know, someone who has changed my life for the better in so many ways. Um, Please enjoy this episode with magnificent Mark Watson. I think we're recording. Um, This is your second... your second Mopad episode. Oh, we've started? Mm -hmm. Right, Mm -hmm. I thought you were just muttering to yourself. (laughs) Yes, it is, Sophie. Hi. Hi. Um, for those of you who don't know who you are, do you want to just give a description? Yeah, I'm, um, well, my name is Mark Watson, and I'm sort of a, one of these people you get who do stand-up comedy, but also write books, and um, lots of other stuff, actually. I've, I mean, I'm always 
keeping myself busy with one thing or the other. And this is also, as you say, it's not even my first uh, Mopod, so that introduction was only needed by kind of more fickle people who have come <laughs> along more recently. The hardcore was already... <laughs> your, your first episode is one of the most uh, listened to episodes I have. I didn't know that. Well, it's and I think it's partly because you're great and people love you and I think we have uh, the same audience. Should but... we leave it at that, in fact? It's because I'm great. <laughs> but I think it has a little bit to do with the fact that the word porn was in the title. Oh, yeah, that's right. So you can do something similar for this well, one. Well, what I'm trying to urge you to do is at some point just say porn in some kind of funny okay. context so we can make that the new title. Or I guess we could just have a straight title and see how many listeners it, we drop and then it'll be a good test of whether it is about me or about porn. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know if I want the answer to that. I don't but, think but I do But now you've already said the word porn, so the title could be, is it me or is it porn? Yeah, okay, and good. we've hardly started, so I'll definitely get more porn in. <laughs> we currently have... Uh, a goulash in the oven. Uh, yeah, we're we're cooking. Uh, this sounds all wrong, doesn't it? I know it sounds like a, <laughs> it sounds like a euphemism. It sounds like a euphemism for something. <laughs> but you're right. We do have what they call a goulash. Yeah, in the I just oven. wanted to set the scene because it's quite usually. I usually record at the Phoenix Artists Club. This uh, is a special one. We're at my house. Yeah. And a tradition has recently begun of me and Sophie cooking together for small groups of people. Yeah. Uh, like basically, <laughs> no more than ourselves and two other yeah. uh, people and um it's because cooking um i've hardly done any cooking in my adult life well and or, or as a child really or as a baby yeah i um, don't do it either and it stresses me out generally as a thing because some people are so good at it and um do it so confidently and i think the thing with cooking for me is that it it calls upon quite a lot of multitasking basically which is one of my least favorite things to be called on to do like uh, bring simmer this but you're also chopping this and at the same time this should be ready and it, like the last thing I want in my life is to take on a task that involves eight subtasks <laughs> that are done simultaneously so I always avoid cooking and then but um my great friend Corey um used to always cook tremendous meals for us when she we were staying with her in Manchester and so uh, eventually I said enough of this one day I will cook for you and when that day came I enlisted Sophie <laughs> as my co-chef and basically dodged half the bullet by doing it together and we cooked it's fair to say a magnificent on that occasion really good. um and so this is this is now a kind of irregular tradition where yeah. we but we um we have aprons on and everything we've got aprons sophie made them for christmas yeah. no for my birthday was it <laughs> Your birthday was um, for me. mine says my Watson head chef um, but those of you, well, you'll all know Sophie because you're her listeners. You won't be surprised that her says Sophie also has chef. In case you thought there was any concession to, uh, well, you know, well, I don't which, as it should be. My kitchen is not a hierarchy. It's, no. a, it's a place. It's a democracy. It's a team. That's why I'm not. I'm a bit surprised when you say you're not fond of multitasking because you do so much stuff, like career-wise. You yeah, do so much stuff. But it's kind of all the same. It's all the same stuff in different versions. Like writing a book is just a bunch of thoughts and ideas. Stand-up is as well. Um, I can combine those kind of activities quite well. But if I have to do two things like that, but also remember where my keys are, uh, raise my daughter, and then I'm chopping an onion as well, it's too much, basically. I have. It's become quite a um, psychological task for me to do this cooking thing because I so quickly become very aggressive yeah 
I mean, that's not just cooking, though. You, you could just say that about yourself and have done with it. <laughs> well, I feel it so much in the cooking because I get so tense about it. Y- yeah. And, like the last time we cooked, at some point, I just went. I was just really aggressively shouting at you to stir something, and I had to take a step back. And yeah, and then you hacked at my face with that steak knife. In fact, didn't you? <laughs> but I just thought this is what she's like in the kitchen, and this is. I'm really trying to be more good about. I know, things. but it is quite an. An adrenaline-heavy exercise, isn't it? As it starts to get hot and uh, there's more stuff going on at once. And um, But you're so good at handling it when I get super aggressive. Well, it's one of the many things that I uh, enjoy about your company. I think if, if I was doing it on my own, all of that aggression and um, angst would just be on me. It would be kind of echoing around my own brain. But if, if you start to get stressed in the kitchen, then uh, my automatic role is to try and take some of that off you. So it's calming. In a way, you should always try and hang out with people more anxious and stressed than yourself because then, by contrast, you feel relatively normal. And that is why I like you because you're almost always more worked up about something than, even than I am. I'm really trying to keep it under, under a lid. Yeah, oh, you do. You do it well. Yeah. I mean, if people knew what you were actually thinking about the time, then <laughs> even the, the hyped-up version of you we see in the kitchen is still probably oh, very contained. It's still very an contained. understatement. Yeah, but I and I may have mentioned this before. Uh, I I dated a guy at one point who, um, in my my side of the story, was that we were just kind of, just gently walking down the street when he suddenly stopped and went, "Stop trying to physically dominate me!" And I was like, "Whoa, whoa, what have I done?" Turns out I push people. Like when yeah. I just walk next to people, I just push them in whatever direction I want them to go. If we in. could see CCTV of what you described as this gentle walk down yeah. the street, we'd see you muscling him against a shop front. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or grabbing him by his collar. Yeah. Or hammering his head in a car door like they do in gangster movies. We were just, I was just trying to get him into the car, help him in. And he starts saying, hey, you're going to so, kill me. Yeah. <laughs> but I had to really... I've not known you do that, like I'm, physically I'm, dominate. I'm so like, I'm so aware of it. Right, I right. Have, I did, I've done it with you in the kitchen a few times, trying to push you to do something. Instead of just asking you kindly. Yeah, to in do the something. kitchen is where you have manhandled me most. <laughs> but I wouldn't say I don't normally associate you with um, like even we went to Denmark a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah. And you knew totally where you were, and I didn't at all times. So you would have had like when we went out for those coffees. Yes. You would have had a right to steer me around, but I don't remember that you did. Not I really. Remember, I actually because. Denmark in particular, because I felt like I so knew where we were going, and I knew that you didn't. I had to focus on not pushing. Yeah, you him. overcompensated because I really had to, like, it's like I've got a right to push him here, yeah. so I'm going to try even harder not to. I'm do those like tight, tightened fists, like yeah. don't do it, don't. I, and don't again, you push Mark Watson. You, you keep a lid on it because I was. I just thought we were having a nice walk and talking about stuff like how bloody cold it was, but all the time. You were actually going through this complex series of psychological... Um, I was trying to not harm you. <laughs> the amount of our time together that we you spend just trying to not harm me not is harm more and more apparent to me, actually. I should be grateful I'm sitting here with you rather than in a hospital or something. Um, how did you find Denmark? Um, you were my... And I put this in, like, um, what do you call these? Air you're, quotes. You're trying to put them in, air like, quotes. inverted commas. Yeah. Inverted commas. Air, yeah, air quotes is... You get, that, you get that facial expression you get when I've said something that isn't correct. It wasn't. Not, it wasn't. There is no not correct, Sophie. There's just because um, air quotes is maybe a more modern way of describing it. A modern? What does that mean? Like a slang kind of way? Yeah. Like I feel like people like 
younger people. If you ever say something that sounds wrong, I don't think that your English isn't right. I assume that because I'm 91, I haven't heard the word that people say these days, as you are well aware. Okay, so inverted commas. Inverted commas is the posh okay. grammatical name for like oh, okay. um, th- these things that we're both doing there. Okay. But I prefer air quotes, and I'm well, going to say air quotes from now on. Present company taken into consideration in ad- ad- inverted commas. In adverted? In um, inverted, inverted like they're commas, but then you invert them so they're... So they're in the sky kind of thing. Oh, well, okay. Also the other so in inverted commas, yeah. you were my support act. Yes. That, it took That's a quick, much too long to... Yeah, yeah. Long. Yes, well, not even, but also the, the um, air quotes aren't even appropriate because I was your support act. Like, I went on yeah, to a shorter but, time yeah, but it's ridiculous. and introduced you. So it's, that's, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I, I, allow me to acknowledge the uh, ridiculousness of... Having Mike Watson as one's support act. I am a supremely talented to, comedian, yeah. It's meant to be me, like, showcasing new talents and, like, giving someone a, an extra opportunity to go out and see Denmark and yeah, do but it, a 10-minute spot in, front, in a big theatre that they've never tried before. But I had never been to Denmark before, so and I was completely new to that audience and situation, and you were a superstar, um, so <laughs> actually... Support is exactly what I felt like. It was the big theatre was very nerve wracking, in fact, um, because you know five hundred Danes. I mean, uh, six hundred and fifty. <coughs> I was. Sorry, uh, I mean, not the numbers in any way matter. You've got a, quite a cough there that sounds like an impressive <laughs> box office performance. <laughs> yeah, six hundred and fifty Danes. Um, so uh, I mean, I and I also your your um, you were presenting your by now exceptionally polished show where I was, I was just sort of messing around. I did the whole thing just about stuff I'd found out about Denmark in the uh, 24 hours that I'd been there. So hardly a gig, really, but it was very exciting. Yeah? Yeah. Do you like Denmark? Oh, yeah. Wasn't it cold, though? <laughs> it's It's that thing, like, when you're from Denmark, people always go, oh, it's, it must be so cold in Denmark. And, and it's not really. Like, it's not that it's the same as the UK. It's less grey. And then you and go. Then you go and it was the Siberian... Yeah, the Cold the guy street. showing us into the Airbnb sort of in a as if it was a charming fact. He said, "This is the coldest day in Copenhagen for thirty years." And I'm like, <laughs> "All right, good." But yeah. you're right; it was also beautiful and crisp. It's not like when it's cold here and everyone wants to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, some people may have wanted to be driven in Copenhagen, <laughs> but it was really very pretty, and um, the air is much cleaner, isn't it? And um, Danish people are very friendly, which is another thing you don't always get here. I had a very enjoyable time. I also enjoyed going to. Uh, what you might think of as Odense, but it's sort of Odense, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I learned to say Danish words a bit by just not, you don't really say any of the letters. You just sort of let a sound come out. Odense. It was really fun. We had, yeah. we had a nice trip, didn't yeah, we? I'm happy you came. I was happy. And it's um, surprising how much uh, progress you make with an audience in, like I did three shows by the end of the third one and I felt like I knew what to do. Whereas the first you one. You had like a Denmark set. Yeah, I had a Denmark <laughs> set. You had Denmark with like your knowledge of, Denmark. Yeah, in January I did shows in Bermuda, and again by the end of that trip I had a Bermudan set. So like very, very gradually I'm uh, getting an international tour together. But it's, <laughs> this is a really long-winded way of doing it. It will be at least another fifteen years before I've got enough countries to do it. As a, still, I'll know what to do next time in Denmark. Oh yeah. Unless you stop being interested in pork, I guess. Oh as a nation, yeah. Which doesn't seem very likely. No, I don't think that. It seems like it's a thing. Soon. Yeah. Pigs will continue to be in Denmark. Uh, last time, well, before the last time you were on the podcast, that was before you ended up going to the island. Yes, weird to think about now. It yeah. must have been a, like a few weeks before that. Yeah. Oh yeah, it must have been. So, do you think you do you think you're a 
different person now than you were before? Um, I th- yeah, in certain ways, yeah. I mean... Maybe it's worth explaining what the island is for people who... Oh, yeah. Uh, last year I did a... Shortly after my first Mopod, I did a... Um, and we can't have talked about it then because I wasn't allowed to say that I was doing it. I don't it. think you knew it at this point. Maybe I didn't. Um, anyway, in May last year, I spent most of the month on an island um, for a show called Celebrity Island with Bear Grylls, where you just go, they just leave you on an island, a group of people, um, and you don't have anything to eat or drink or in shelter. You, or you are given two sort of cans of water, but basically you have to survive with um, nothing using the... Um, using the survival skills that we were all born with, but then forget, because quite rightly, we live mm. in cities mm. and have nice beds and stuff. So I did that. I, I was in that situation for uh, 22 days. And um, then it was weird because I came back and it wasn't um, on TV until September. So people like you, of course, um, I texted the following day saying, oh, I survived, I'm uh, quite ill, I don't, my skin's all been bitten off and so on. But most people never even knew I'd gone in the first place. And um, three weeks in that environment is a terribly long time, but um, three weeks to the people that stayed at home, of course, went by really quickly. So hardly anyone was even conscious that I had, had gone. If they saw me, they just thought I'd maybe look slightly thinner and like I'd been bitten by slightly more insects than usual. Um, but hardly anyone was concerned for my well-being, is my point, apart from my closest friends and family. Then in September, everyone started going, oh, you're all right. God, this looks terrible. You're going to die, even though they were all well aware that I'd, it had happened months ago. Well, actually, not everyone was aware. Some people thought it was kind of being broadcast week by week as it was going on. So lots of people weirdly feared for my um, health and even life when I was, in fact, sitting at home or in the bath and things. Whereas when it was really happening, hardly anyone was uh, praying for me, which suggests that prayers don't work. But it's more, it's a very complicated subject there. No, so I we don't, we don't there was, no, I remember there was an article saying, like, will Mike Watson die? Or, like, Mike Watson near death. Yeah, that was, was the strangest one. I had such, I got such, like, a tiny heart attack. I was like, no, wait, wait. <laughs> He made it. Like I know the ending. It was strange. Yeah, it, it, I put an Instagram, one of my rare Instagram posts, up about it. It was the uh, Daily Express, I think, and it said "shock death on Celebrity Island?" question mark And then a picture of me looking very. Well. I had muttered, "I feel like I'm dying here." I mean, it didn't even really mean it. It was just one of those things that you say when you're uh, terribly sleep deprived. But yeah, they they made it into a story. And as you say, the well, firstly, I was well known to be. Her, back home and also it's unlikely they would have broadcast the show if it ended with me dying i think they'd get quite a lot of complaints so i thought as um possible death stories go that was also not many people know not enough people know who i am for my death to have that much impact on newspaper readers either so a a desperate story but it was hopefully the only time i'll see my own name in a headline about me dying because um when i do either it won't be news because i'm not important enough or well, and I'll be dead, actually. I'll be dead regardless. Regardless of whether or not there's a... Whether it's reported or not, I won't be able to uh, react to it. Unless I'm one of these freak cases you occasionally get where someone appears to be dead and then they come back after 16 minutes or something and then that would probably be in the papers then. Rightly so. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I'd be annoyed if I die, come back to life and they still don't think it's worth the news. So what happened on the island? Well, it was pretty grim, really. Um... I mean, it was meant to be, and I was not expecting any differently, of course. Some people um, some people went into it like a kind of big athletic challenge, or most, not all men, but the, the, the sorry, not all men is a, is a <laughs> slogan that's own right. I simply mean, I don't, I mean, in a deep, uh, deep politicized sense, not all the men on the island were like this, but um, some of them had a slightly 
uh, gung-ho military kind of um, approach to it, as did one or two of the women. Um, and all those people suffered more because they had thought they were going to be great at it. And then, whereas I, um, as you know, th- thought it would be shit from the outset. So um, even though I had a miserable time, my expectations were set at a more realistic level. Because it sounds like the sort of thing, if you're, I mean, it wouldn't be for you and it wasn't really for me. But if you're a certain type of person, you think, oh, it'd be great. I can't wait to build a shelter. Um, I can't wait to like either get in touch with nature or prove something about your your personality, your abilities. It's the sort of thing that strikes a particular, more physically courageous type of person as like a cool challenge. I never thought of that. I, I, I thought it would be a worthwhile psychological process to go through and I'd learn things, but I was prepared for it to be pretty shit. But it was shit in ways that I did not necessarily expect. Um like the first few nights we would we didn't have a proper shelter yet we couldn't build one because we we um were desperately trying to get a fire going because without that you can't eat or even drink anything so about four days in we didn't have any water that we could drink or we were having to sort of lick rainwater off um leaves and stuff which that was when it fell we didn't have much rain and then there was this um all those things i expected so i was even though that wasn't very nice i was fine with being hungry and water deprived and stuff because that's still part of the adventure I suppose. but there were also a series of quite violent thunderstorms in the first week and I'm terrible I had, at the time I don't know if we talked about this in the first Mopod um, but a crippling fear of being struck by lightning and thunderstorms in general and I'd known it could happen on the island but the TV producers were like we think it'd be mostly dry might be, get a bit stormy from time to time nothing prepared me for how I'd just be in the middle of um, this like onslaught of lightning and every night um, again and again and even when we did have a proper shelter it was just like leaves and twigs and stuff so for, for the first three or four nights in a row actually not the very first night the very first night we just slept under the stars um, you could hear the noises of the jungle and stuff and I, most of us did kind of think this this is going to be alright this is going to be like a cool adventure that I can tell people about back home then nights two, three, four and five we were just uh, blown all over the place by these terrible storms what shelters we had blew away. We had to just like hide under palm leaves and stuff. People, almost complete strangers, were like cuddling up to each other for warmth, sobbing, shuddering. People were ill. And this lightning and thunder every few seconds. There was four nights of that in a row. And by the end of that, I'd uh, faced my the worst thing I fear in my life four consecutive nights. So even if nothing else had happened on the island, I would never be the same person again, I think. Because sure enough, by the end of it, although I was still quite twitchy and I will always dislike storms but I felt um, I no longer felt it was a specific threat to me I felt differently about storms from how I had at any other point in my life and that's why people get cured of stuff by just making themselves do it I suppose that's why what they call exposure therapy I believe yeah that's why people get cured of like snake phobia by just having them around their neck or Mm. but the face that you made there is also what I would do um it, yeah, it works because gradually it normalises the thing, and the unknown is, of course, what you, what you fear about almost almost anything. I mean, of course, we're genetically and um, evolutionarily programmed to fear certain stuff. Like you should fear snakes because <laughs> quite a lot of them can kill you. And you, I think it's rational to fear lightning in a way because it can also kill you. But I had been scared of storms. Uh, just looking out of the window at one when it was not technically possible for anything to happen to me. So it was it was quite a long way away from being rational. Um, and that's why I never made attempts to have... You know, I did once have a couple of sessions of cognitive behaviour with CBT, specifically about the storms. And the lady tried to encourage me to 
like write the word storm in the air, throw it in the bin, all this, you know, the kind of stuff that CBT gradually does, like labels things, makes them into not a problem, puts them into a different area of your brain. But I could never do it because um, I, I think because only part of my brain was able to acknowledge that it was, um, well, I suppose because it was a mixture of rational and irrational fears, because I was equally scared of being struck by lightning, which is normal and and just a storm happening 50 miles away which is not so i couldn't separate the things out but anyway none of these mattered once i was on an island i would sometimes someone put a coat over me or um i would find a way of hiding but also the, the reason it worked um like if i'd been on my own on the island i uh i don't think it would have helped me to get over my fear of lightning i would just have, um either died of fear or um, waded into the sea and drowned myself or something. I'm exaggerating, but not by much. <laughs> uh, however, with a group of people, of course, you, like on the first, before it even started happening, I said to everyone, by the way, if there's a storm, I'll be, it's going to be awful. I'll embarrass myself. So then the first night, people um, looked after me in quite a touching way. None of this was really shown on the TV because the, the TV focused on the conflict and the difficulties, but there was a real sense of harmony in the group a lot of the time, which just didn't wasn't convenient for for it as a tv show so there's loads of nice bits which were never shown and that was one of them people kind of sheltering me but yeah the second time it happens you think i really want to be the guy that every time there's a problem um hides from it or needs to be looked after and so what did they, how did they did they just all get together and shelter you like like one the first time it happened someone put a like just put his coat on a huge great heavy coat i can still feel what it was like just the kind of comforting blackness of this coat and I just lay there like balled up like a hedgehog but with it covered in this coat for about an hour not very dignified but my terror overcame my and then a new group of people as well I really didn't want to come across like this but I had no option um but then and then when we when we had like makeshift shelters people would like allow me to just be slightly further out of the, out of the elements so I couldn't see it so well all people would just say reassuring stuff to me and like during the nights because in the night you would just be look, looking up at the sky and um lightning would flash kind of every five seconds i think i said at the time it wasn't ever broadcast but i remember saying it would be like if you were scared of spiders um and somebody you lay awake for 11 hours and somebody put a spider in your face like every five seconds that's what the lightning thing was like mm. because these storms the flashes were so constant and people always talk about tropical storms like it's really sudden and violent and it's gone after 20 minutes so that was my first coping mechanism was like ride this out this will pass which does kind of work in the uk but there it turns out a tropical storm means the opposite of what we use it to mean they, they, they would it would go on for 10 or 11 hours so there'd be over one night i counted and it was like cause I just as a way of doing something i counted them I think the idea was like the more you count, the more those ones didn't get uses, and it was something like 372 separate flashes of lightning or something. And um, so I was emotionally and even physically exhausted. But by about the fourth night, well, actually, the turning point was when we had a, once we had a fire going, everyone in the group was just desperate to keep the fire alive at, at any cost because um, once we had the fire, we were able to purify water to drink, we could eat if we could find anything, and also for warmth and in every way the fire made everyone feel better. If it went out, it would be so hard to start it again that we would be absolutely screwed. So at night when it started, from about day five onwards, when it pissed it down the night or there was a storm, we would all take turns to just cover over the fire, holding anything we could find, like sheltering it, 
we found an old bit of tarpaulin and and obviously that's the kind of job where people would do it for like three or four hours at a time and hand over to other people there's no way I could not do that because I'd feel like I wasn't doing my bit for the group so my responsibility to the other people um meant that by I had to recover much faster than and that was the same with anything anytime you felt um a, a fear or like dread of something in that environment that you thought would overcome you um knowing that everyone else was in the same situation was and it made me think this um one of the I read a book recently which said that we're all um, brought up to think, uh, don't worry about what anyone else says, you can do it, focus on yourself, you, like follow your dreams, your path, don't be led by other people. And some of that's obviously good, but it does mean we're an incredibly individualistic generation, I think. Most people my age, um, even your age are about, like what, maybe more for you guys as well, because... Uh, the internet only increases your ability to live on your own while still being in contact with the world. So I'm not saying that that is bad or the internet is bad, obviously, but it is the case that um, we've all been brought up to think. And or you hear a lot of phrases like, no one can make you better but you, you know, or no one can achieve your dreams but you. And so what this book was saying was that all of these things uh, subtly enforce the idea that we are entirely the masters of our own fate for a lot of good, you know, self-help has, has instilled that idea. Like you are the one to go and sort yourself out and you can work this out. And nobody can stop you. There's some real positivity in that idea, but it also means that we've slightly forgotten that there are loads of things in your life which can only be supplied with another person. And I really learned that from the island. And there's like, a, and just, <laughs> I'm now going to reference uh, a, a Twitter thread because that's my... I'm glad you're when talking. You, I feel like I talked no, for no, 20 no, minutes no, without any... No, no, and I want to know, and I have much more to ask, but... <laughs> just when you say I read this book that's my way of saying yeah well I read it I also but, saw a Twitter read yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, books are really long because it's the same content the uh, same concept of someone saying oh you do you you can do what you can do whatever you want yeah um, or someone pointed out that's also an incredibly privileged position to be in yeah because obviously a white straight man will be able to do a lot more than uh, black disabled woman or whatever. Yeah, you do you does not work for people yeah, who are really intrinsically less able to yeah. do some stuff. Yeah, it's people. very. It, yeah. it does put that like, oh well, if you're not successful or if you're not happy or if you're not da da da, you could have just done it. You could have just, yes, that is. Yeah, there's a way of you just doing it on your own without the system having to change or what yes. you say without other people. Yeah, if yeah, exactly. This is the same kind of thing. If if you think too much that just doing your thing is the only path to that then as you say for a start the inverse becomes true if you if you're not happy or rich as you wanted to be or as famous whatever it is then that has to be because you weren't good enough which is not a healthy way of looking mm. at it but yeah also um societies work by people helping each other to achieve their goals and um that is a thing i came away from the island with because in lots of ways um tackling things with 10 people it's just a bit better than and I'm a real individualist I write books my favourite thing is to do stuff on my own and not consult anyone and as you know I approach my life like that quite a lot as well sometimes damagingly but on the island you literally couldn't do that if you went off and you could get your own space for a bit people would wander off sometimes I would wander off and like gather berries or uh, pick stuff off the rocks that we might be able to eat but if you went away on your own for more than say half an hour you were kind of being selfish because you you were just 
you're no longer functioning as part of the group. So being in, in an ex- extreme group situation like that, i.e. you were the only 50 people, uh, 15 people, basically you may as well be the only people in the world, it, it, it does teach you that, especially teaches someone like me that instinctively likes to work on his own, that there are loads of ways in which you're enriched by um, by other people. And, and this phobia thing was one of the main things. I, I managed to get through it. And I think that's why it has never happened before, because it was always like, well, I should get therapy. I should read this book or watch this video, read it a thread for you mm. about the way to solve it. <laughs> but what I'd never really considered was, um, what if I was in a team of people and all of us needed something from each other, then I would get past it because I'd have to do it for the other people. Um, and I'm not saying that all problems can be overcome like that, but it, it did make me think a lot about um, the way that needing to do stuff for uh, for unselfish reasons, like for the good of a group, actually brings on potentially selfish improvements. Yeah. I'm, uh, is it... Um... If I said you were an anxious person, is that, is that does that ring through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Except that, um, in again, because of being slightly older than you, in in the time since I was at university, say I've seen anxiety uh, become talked about more and more as a mm. condition where it was largely just seen as a kind of facet of character before. Mm. So. I've never described myself as having anxiety, for example, in the way that you do, because um, I don't know if the, the anxious ways that I behave actually add up to the same as a pathology of anxiety, um, if you see what I mean. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there's no I mean, doubt. If you made it into a competition, if, then <laughs> you, oh, you, you would win. <laughs> no, you definitely win. I, 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 my, I know you. I but I suppose <laughs> to answer your question, though, yeah, if somebody, ha- if almost anyone had to describe me in five words, either nervous or nervy or anxious or one yeah. of them would be that. So yeah. how does that add up with you deciding to go to an island to do something that's like? I mean, um, I, I know people who are described as brave and courageous and strong and independent, and they would not even go near a situation like that. It, it was, and it's going to sound uh, naive, probably, but um, I'd, I'd have a genuine belief in the idea of, um, I suppose self-improvement is, is the word, although... Uh, y- you know, you might say that that is a problematic word because it um, implies that there is a, some sort of perfect version of yourself which you could achieve. I don't think. I, I think there's a lot to be said for just being you, being the person you are. But I, I am always quite keen to. I do a joke about it on stage, or I have done in the past, where I say, um, people talk about it's good to be out of your comfort zone, and I say, but I, I like it in my comfort zone. It's comfy, mm. and um, that is true where possible I think that actually that is the answer to your question where possible I will not leave my comfort zone I will make my life as comfortable and easy as possible I suppose the truth for most people so then I'm not going to make small positive changes by myself that often this looked like an opportunity to be forced to make some useful changes if you see what I mean and at the time I was drinking uh, quite a bit more than I do now year on I, in many ways, I was in unhelpful um, thought patterns. And so I was kind of conscious. What does that mean, unhe- unhelpful thought patterns? Uh, I'd, been, I'd been in a like, difficult um, marital situation. I'd 
I was kind of I was undermining myself either with persistent cycles of negativity or again I wouldn't say I was so depressed as a um, as a constant in the way that people describe themselves as having depression but I had uh, there were there was loads of psychological clutter that needed sorting there were loads of um, I was too dependent on I I had got into a rut with an image of myself as like a, a kind of a shambles of a person which I wasn't fully committed to sorting out and although it's ridiculous to think um, well a TV show is the way to deal with that I, it's a big and it's a big and weird enough thing to be offered that it struck me as like a kind of I knew I would definitely change by doing it and the gamble that it might be a worse change seemed worth taking basically I th- and it's interesting because somebody recently another comedian approached me and said what was it like do you recommend it and it's obviously not the sort of thing that you exactly recommend but because I know that he's a slightly uh, like me prone to be anxious prone to overthink things um, and to have neuroses to do with career and stuff I thought he was someone that would benefit from it for the same reasons as I did because he'd be completely isolated and also um, but I heard recently that he decided not to do it in the end and so like does that make you feel does that give you do you feel less respect for him no no but it suggests to me that definitely not because for a start you're away from your family and from everyone you love for and by the way I mean of course you have no contact at all you can send messages to them but you don't know if they're getting them and you don't receive any messages or anything so if you've got I don't know whether he has but if you have children or, or or you know you might have you might be in a relationship where somebody there's a particular codependence or for loads of reasons that I don't know about mm. somebody might decide not to do it and also it's a shitty enough experience that I would not blame anyone who mm. didn't do it just but um, if somebody if somebody decided to turn it down that would suggest to me that not only that they were reasonably happy with what they knew to be their uh, quirks. Uh, my thing, I think, this time last year was that there were things about me that I was dissatisfied with, but I didn't have any faith in any way I knew of um, resolving them. And of course, it wasn't just doing on the island. The main reason I am better now is that I'm um, in a happy relationship. I've sorted out loads of the negativity that surrounded me in, in other ways. Uh, I go running a lot more. I'm happy with lots of creative projects, but the island did spark a certain um, turnaround in my kind of fortunes because, quite apart from anything else, being on a holiday from your life, as someone put it like that, is quite healthy. Like, it's, it's almost never in life that you step completely outside everything that you're doing. No phone, of course, no laptop or anything like that, but even on a more basic level, you you can't get to any of the places you've ever been before. You're in an environment you've never been in before. Like when astronauts talk about um, seeing the entire Earth from space and realising that all of the problems they've ever had have been contained within that that planet, everything that anyone's ever done or thought, they've all been on that ball. And the physical separation from that tiny ball uh, you know, has an enormous, some, must be a liberating effect because you think, and I've, that's, I've always done my head and I've always since I was a boy, I've tried to imagine the feeling of seeing uh, the whole of the world in one glance. You you can't, I don't think, picture it. 
But this for me, in a tiny way, was the equivalent. It was the closest I'll ever be to basically not being in my life because 99% of my life was in a place I couldn't touch it. And I think that is a valuable experience for almost anyone because inevitably you end up thinking a lot about the stuff you'd like to address in the same way that painters have to like go away from a picture and then come back into the room. And it's one of those sort of things. I think there's any number of metaphors you can use for actually, <laughs> but I, above all, I think the biggest thing it gives you is um, a sense of perspective that I, that can only be got by doing something quite extreme. Like every time I go to bed now, I'm in a nice bed. My, or I didn't even have to be a nice bed. Anything recognisable as a bed, my body like screams out in relief. Uh, even now, because I remember what it was like lying on, um, trying to make a bed out of leaves and having sand everywhere and being bitten. I was bitten to the point of near insanity every night by insects, scratching all night, um, being deprived of sleep for days on end or again just not having any food not as in just being hungry but this more fundamental um food deprived state where your your body begins to just shut down tasks one at a time and you and the idea of even just having a banana in that environment like one time we found a pineapple and people lost their shit as if we'd all been served like a roast dinner and all we had like two slivers of the pineapple each but and you don't have to be much of a like I, of course don't want to be one of these um walking cliches who say it really made me realize how grateful i am for what i've got and we don't know that all the time there are people in the rest of the world who have much worse time but nonetheless because i've always known that i'm really lucky to have what i have like a shelter a bed uh, sausages and mash and so on um but you can know that intellectually for a long time and never feel it in that way otherwise we'd all just give everything to charities and stuff if we if we felt all the way through our body what it's like to be like starving or I maybe mean, okay, you wouldn't get everything away because but you'd all of us would do loads more for um the rest of the world if we emotionally engage with that every day, but you can't because nobody can do that because nobody, if you did have that much empathy, you'd be, you'd be on the floor. You couldn't live your actual life if you were feeling the pain of millions of other people all the time. Everyone knows that. Um, so I don't want it to sound like a kind of poverty tourism or something, but it was for me an opportunity to remember that I live in an unbelievably fortunate pocket of the world. And that still hasn't worn off for me. As I say, every time I get into bed or eat something, use what is recognised with a toilet, basically do anything that you do in your normal life. At least a part of me um, feels really grateful. And that's a gratitude I was not walking around with for most of my first sort of 36 years. So it was worth doing for that. And because when you've had that, it is quite easy to make improvements in your life because there's not as much holding you back. Even sitting at a computer and starting to write something, you think, shit, it's great I'm even allowed to do this. If I was almost everyone in the history of the world, I'd wouldn't be able to do this because someone would be like making me plough a field or beating me with a club or you know so um gratitude i can understand why um modern gurus are always on about like mindfulness and thankfulness for your environment because it is a once you have that as a starting point tasks do become easier because you're not weighed down by thinking like i'm able to run uh, much further much greater distances and much faster and just better than i used to be able to and I don't think it's mostly because of physical conditioning it's because 
I feel so great to be doing it for the first couple of miles because there was a three weeks where I was too physically weak to do anything. And if something feels great, then you probably will do it better. So everything's like that now in my life. I'm not saying I don't get miserable, but my starting point now is I have a pretty good life, not I have a pretty shit life. Um, and it, as I say, I got there by a variety of paths, but the island was a quite important one. How much of the the good things that happened because of the island came from the actual, you know, physical experience of being deprived and then gaining back a lot of the things you didn't have for those three weeks? And how much of it came from the fact that you were in a group of people who seemingly um, just unconditionally were affectionate towards you or loved you or protected you or made you part of a group if you're someone who's always been a solo artist in a way do you think like, yeah which do you think had the biggest effect well i think um i mean it was certainly both things i suppose the yeah the most important thing about it was the um the physical physical deprivation and well and also mental actually the um the extreme uh the mental extremes you go through when you're not sleeping for days on end or um or when you haven't eaten for we didn't eat at all for about the first eight days um and when all of those things are um are things that you that when you come back you can channel those feelings quite easily and uh derive strength from them. so i think that was the, that was the biggest thing but also um it's definitely the case that um it's not that I didn't think I could get on with people because if anything, I pride myself on being able to um, broker relationships between people. Like I'm a peacemaker by nature. Um, I try to find compromise wherever I can in a way that's very different from you. And um, <laughs> I'm not saying that, that my way of doing it is better. As you know, I quite ardently admire people like you for the fight that you bring it's breaking up to people stuff. yeah the the d- divisiveness that you bring to society yeah. is something i think is fantastically valuable but um i did come away from the island with a feeling that my ability to um or my at least my kind of eagerness to put people in harmony with each other was more valuable than i had thought of it before because there were loads of difficult conversations group dynamics are difficult to negotiate even with people that all got on well, um, our mutual kind of supportiveness wasn't really unconditional. It had to be worked at and decisions had to be painstakingly worked over by... So it wasn't just me. There were two or three of us whose instincts um, were to steer people to discussion and there were no real assholes. There were a couple of people who came across on screen as being very aggressive, but even the mouthiest people were... Um, capable of reasoned debate but it was really interesting to me to see how people behave if their instinct is to fight or at least put their put themselves forward in as aggressive a way as possible and I, this is a different type of person again from you mm-hmm. if you're in that environment like you might express yourself quite forcefully but I don't think that you would see yourself as the boss or want to impose your opinion over other people's there were people only if they were wrong unless they were wrong for us <laughs> So, yeah, I think one of the things that I gained from it psychologically was feeling like there is space in the world for people who automatically 
take a middle ground between two people's points of view. Not automatically, of course, some people's points of view are wrong. I mean, I'm not a centrist on every point, but it was good for me to feel that people valued that about me because I thought I might just come across as a kind of essentially useless person that says, well, let's not fight. And um, I mean, you. I only saw the first episode and like I think the first thing you said in that was something like, oh, the women, the women have got this. And I was like, yes. There was a, yeah. I was like, that's exactly, like of all the things you could have said, I was like, yes. I made a couple of pro-women remarks in the first, like 15 minutes of the first episode, not on purpose, like anyone that imagines (laughs) that. It sounded like you put it in there just to. Yeah, if you were trying to do something like that tactically, it would be, (laughs) you'd be very, very fortunate if that worked because you you say about 30,000 things, like I don't even (laughs) remember saying those things, but I do remember having the general opinion that, almost from the start the women were again not all of them but on the whole the women um in, in fact the most significant feud was between two women but i i just felt that um generally and very much in keeping with um gender clichés really the women came at it with less of a sense that they ought to be in charge and um with maybe one exception, there was no, there was no, woman, there was no individual woman there who felt like, right, I got this, I'm going to decide this, I'm going to go out on a mission unilaterally. Um, the men in the first few days did tend to do that an awful lot, and there was no doubt that I felt much more like the rest of the women uh, in terms of my character than most of the men, and I came to that conclusion pretty quickly. It didn't come as a surprising conclusion. I've generally had more fulfilling relationships and friendships with women, not universally, but on the whole. Um, and, But it's odd because when I saw the TV, the edit of it, it had been steered very much more to that conclusion. Like almost the whole narrative of the TV series as edited was look at these idiot men, but now the women are in charge, everything's cool. And um, what happened on the island was indeed a version of that, but of course it's an awful lot more nuanced than that because... 10 people with 10 different personalities, well, 15, is never going to be as simple as that. So I partly resisted the idea that, like, well, this is because men are full of macho... No, I resisted because I'm not that, for a start. Like, sometimes when I would watch the show and we were being led to that, it's odd being a man and being told that certain characteristics of masculinity are so obvious that they don't even need talking about it. And you think, I suppose that is true, yes, because I can see that everywhere. And I accept that those things are also in me. But I'm still not that sort of... But of course, I also understand that when men are criticised by people like you, mm-hmm. um, it is for good generic reasons which do not constitute individual attacks. All I'm really saying is, it was weird for me thinking, oh, the men are all behaving in one way and the women are all behaving more or less in another way. And this is very much as would have been predicted. Except I am a man and I don't, I'm not doing it. Can that be taken out into like a broader picture of you in the world and not just on the island? Well, it has to be, really, because nobody was behaving like that because we were all on an island. It was just that the island maybe magnified certain things. Like if you were the sort of man that was like, give me a machete, I'm going to hack through three miles of jungle before we know what we're doing, then the island was very much the place for you. (laughs) But then you would would immediately, you'd collapse with exhaustion. That was why it was quite... That's why programmes like this are popular, because morality tales that would take years to play out in real life you get a payoff almost immediately like a guy goes out in search of water he he goes out on his own because he thinks he knows what to do 
he gets too tired, he gets lost, he gets bitten, he comes back and he needs even more water. So he's ended up being a negative. Like, it's like an Aesop's fable or something. Mm. But all that happens within three hours instead of, like, whereas that would be kind of a subplot of an entire novel. So I saw a lot of those kind of things. And, yeah, it, it reminded me that in life, um, some or it gave me confidence, perhaps, that some of the things that I do um, that are unusual, are relatively unusual and non-traditionally male, and that that is... Um, uh, that I should be pleased with those things. I mean, I generally have been. One of the things I've never had a hang-up about is to what extent I am or I'm not a good example of masculinity. I think that, um, like, what they, what is what people call testosterone is almost almost completely absent from most of my behaviour. It's weird, though, because I am very competitive, like, in sport. If I'm playing a game, I do want to win it. And... Um, well, as you know, I'm supporting my football team. I, I, I sort of yearn for victory for my team and, and identify tribally with my team in a way which is not exclusively male, but it's definitely seen as a male. So that's the thing. There is, there's no doubt that I have certain male characteristics that are absolutely bang on. Um, but on the whole, you probably would say that my approach to problem solving is untypically male. And I came back from the island with a sense that, that I'd been vindicated by that. Thank you so much for listening uh, to this episode with Mark Watson, the two part, the number two part, the number two part, the second part, second part. I think that's what you're saying in English. I'm from Denmark, by the way, if you didn't know by now, <laughs> the second part will come up next week. Uh, I love Mark to bits. He's going on to go to his website to sign up for his newsletter to be notified about the tickets. Um, and yeah, go to consider going to Patreon dot com forward slash mopod to support the podcast financially Ugh, that sounds so bad um to support the podcast uh <laughs> with money that doesn't sound much better if you give more than it so it's a, a website where you sign up and then you give a certain amount of dollars it's all in american uh per episode and then at the end of the month it deducts that automatically um and yeah that's it. And then you support the podcast. You're part of this lovely group of people. I mean, my listeners, I said this before, I'm going to say it again. You're the most wonderful people. And I'm so proud. I'm so, so proud. So if you give more than $5 per episode, you will become a friend of the podcast. Meaning at the end of each episode, I will butcher your name for money. <laughs> Not on purpose. I just don't know how to pronounce your names. So uh, for example, in this episode, uh, I would like to give a huge thank you to the people who supported the podcast with more than $5 per episode uh, at the, this given time in place. Um, I know my English is terrible. I know it's a rambly one. It's really late and oh, I'm behind with everything. <laughs> um, yeah, so please join me in thanking these amazing people. Uh, give a big thank you to... Kathy Draxelbauer, Robert Knowles, Eve Wingrith, Marnie Biles, Phil Vebelis, Kat Katrina Engelson, uh, Rachel Furley, Zoe Cumberland, George Pearson, Marbles Lost, Danielle Rowley, Ronya Ronya, <laughs> Robert Lee, Lee Can, Phil Sumner, Kat Posey, Nancy Gristel, Ragdoll, Taylor Marshall, Nina Collingwood, Camille Overroar, Jessica, Sheena Robinson, Gregory Mk. Jane, Jane Mahoney, Mansour Mir, Hannah Keel, Helena Thomas, Joe C, Lily, Rob Crossland, Harry Minute, 
Sissel Fjell, Toon, Rachel Hemsley, Murray Fraser, Lucy, Elin Olofsson, Susie Tyler, Rachel Kraftman, Kirsten Davidson, Purdy Patterson, Steph Ream, Ruth Harvey, Katie Hatfield, Robin Cabeth, Karen Thrathaway, Russell Hughes, Ida Søgo Larsen, Inger Ellingsen, Caleb Melchior, Dr. Bodercycle, Emma Chan, Kathy Beveridge, Emma Walton, Andy Walker, Geraldo... Geraldo Nascimento, Claire, Danny Beckett, Fiona Richardson, Claire Lamb, Grace Suter, Kat Piller, Harold Van Dyke, Eleanor, Sarah Ferreira Agassiz, and Daniel Reifersheet. What a lovely bunch of people. I love you all very much. Uh, I want to thank Sarah Garvey for producing this episode, Bailey Leonard for writing and recording the jingle, to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo, and to the Phoenix Artist Club and Peter Dunbar for letting me record episodes there. I will speak to you next week with the second part of the Mark Watson episode. Mm-hmm.